You're listening to Washington Post Live's First Look podcast with Jonathan Capehart. Welcome to First Look, Washington Post Live's one-stop shop for news and analysis. I'm Jonathan Capehart, associate editor of the Washington Post. Quite a week we've had in the United States, a week that started with an unprecedented event, the criminal indictment of a former president on 34 felony counts. Joining me now, Jackie Alemany, congressional investigations reporter for The Washington Post. Jackie, welcome back to First Look. Hey, good morning, Jonathan. Thanks for having me. So you reported on the unusual admonishment by the judge in this case. He warned Donald Trump against any efforts uh, to cause, quote, civil unrest. What does your reporting show about the reason why Judge Juan Mershon did not issue a gag order? Yeah, well, it was a really interesting discussion. I was actually in New York and inside the court overflow room, which means I didn't get to actually see uh, the former president in person, but did see a live stream video footage of him, um, which due to the nature of the proceedings, the rest of the American public wasn't able to. But during this arraignment, which actually went on longer than than arraignments traditionally go, Marshawn, as, as you said, the judge um, overseeing uh, the proceeding did ask the former president to tone down his rhetoric, um, but did not go so far as to ask for a gag order, um, as neither did the uh, prosecutors who are handling the case. That was Chris Conroy, uh, the prosecutor in the district attorney's office, who um, really uh, sort of led the uh, prosecutorial team. Um, They did ask for a protective order, but not a gag order because of sort of the the nature of um, this, the, the, the very unusual nature of this case, which is taking place as Trump is a presidential candidate heading into the 2024 presidential election. Judge Marchand noted that uh, the president's right to free speech are, is particularly important during this time as a candidate and that he did not want to prevent him from uh, defending himself and, and speaking out against the case, but he did want him to be more cautious and judicious about the kinds of rhetoric that he was engaging in. Um, the, the prosecutor's team at one point actually handed out tweets as examples of some of this uh, inflammatory and potentially in, in insightful rhetoric. Um, and so, you know, everyone in the courtroom at that moment was well aware what the, the judge was referring to. Right. And yet, Jackie, hours after his arraignment, uh, Donald Trump unleashed on the judge, the judge's wife, and the judge's daughter. Trump's sons have also attacked the judge and his family. There are already reported threats against Judge Marchand Marshawn and his family. Might this factor into a future gag order? What recourse does the judge or the court have given what the former president did after the admonition hours earlier in the courtroom? Well, uh, it's sort of a lose-lose situation for prosecutors and for the judge here. Uh, and 
our reporting on on sort of the the Trump legal team side of things is that if this judge goes ahead and does ultimately issue a gag order, that that is only going to sort of further make Donald Trump a martyr and a victim of this process. Uh, they will most likely continue to fundraise off of off of this case and these proceedings um, and highlight the fact if this judge does in fact implement some sort of gag order uh, that Trump is being silenced uh, and that this is just another example of the way that the judicial system is weaponized against conservatives. Um, but what we do know is, is that if this rhetoric does continue, the judge did say that that gives um, him as well as the prosecution an opportunity to come back to the court and uh, argue from for some more limits. Uh, also as well, the prosecution noted that if Trump did not listen to the judge, he could be found uh, in contempt of the court. Um, this isn't the only case. The Manhattan case isn't the only case you've been looking at, Jackie. You've been reporting on all the other legal cases involving Donald Trump. That's the DOJ investigation into those classified documents found at Mar-a-Lago, the criminal probe of the January 6th insurrection at the U.S. Capitol, and the efforts in Georgia to overturn um, the 2020 election. Does the Manhattan case have any effect on those investigations? Where do they stand? I think there's been a lot of punditry and pontificating about how Bragg's decision to pursue this indictment takes pressure off of special counsel Jack Smith or uh, Fulton County District Attorney Fonnie Willis. Um, but the the fact of the matter is, is, is most of these prosecutors are purists who really try to do their jobs without any sort of political considerations. And these uh, investigations are all running parallel to each other and are, are working as expeditiously as possible because the reality is, is that this does, this will ultimately have some political repercussions as we're heading into a 2020, 20, a 2024 um, presidential season, uh, where the the target of this investigation is undoubtedly going to use this as a, a repeated talking point to his to whip up you know, his base and, and to whip up his supporters. Um, I think the, the question looking forward is, you know, are these uh, are future court appearances or future trials going to happen in the middle of the primaries um, or is it going to happen after Trump has already been the nominee? So these are um, certain dates and deadlines that we're all keeping track of, uh, but that the we are, are led to believe that the prosecution is trying to uh, simply ignore and, and focus on the facts that they have and how um, much, how good, good and rock solid of a case they have. Actually, and, and that um, anticipates a question I was going to ask, which is, you know, Special Counsel Jack Smith, uh, Fulton County DA Bonnie Willis, um, who am I missing? There's one more person <laughs> I'm missing. <laughs> Or maybe it's Jack Smith has got Letitia James. That's right. New York Attorney General yeah. Letitia James. Um, I was going to ask you, do they even care about the political calendar that we're all watching with the first Republican debate slated, presidential debate slated for August, with uh, um, Republican and Democratic presidential primaries kicking off? in 2024. They, if I heard you correctly, they're not paying attention to that. They're paying attention to uh, the law and their legal deadlines in their respective investigations. 
Yeah, and, and that is at least what the people around them have consistently reinforced to us during uh, our conversations with people who either have previously worked with them or who um, are currently working with these prosecutors. Uh, but there is no doubt that it's going to be challenging and more challenging to prosecute Trump if he is the nominee or potentially the president. Uh, and so, you know, these cases take a lot of time and work to build. And you're already seeing people like the special counsel's office uh, and, and Jack Smith working on an expedited timeline, um, potentially to, to try to avoid some of these pitfalls when it comes to presidential primaries and the political process. You know, that actually reminds me, I don't know if you have any reporting on this, Jackie, so I apologize in advance for putting you on the spot. The one big news that came out this week was that former Vice President Mike Pence, Donald Trump's vice president, announced that he will not fight um, the subpoena now to come in and testify before Jack Smith's um, uh, grand jury. Do any idea when his testimony might happen? Well, that's funny, Jonathan, because we were joking this week that it would have been a good time for him to have sneakily gone into D.C. District Court to appear before the grand jury without much notice or, or fanfare because we were all sort of pointed at a million different things. Um, but it is unclear when he's actually slated to appear, whether or not he's going to do so in person. Maybe he'll do so um, via Zoom. We know that Donald Trump's lawyers actually asked for some Zoom appearances for future court appearances with regards to the district attorney going forward to sort of avoid the massive, uh, you know, orchestration that was put together to support his appearance. Um, Pence is obviously a bit of a less high profile figure, so it might not be as much of a production to get him to appear before the grand jury. But we do we anticipate this will happen imminently, just not exactly sure of the date. And just to be clear, it is not, or maybe it is, standard operating procedure to say, for the court to say, or a grand jury to say, hey, on this date, this witness is coming in to testify. It's basically you and our colleagues in the media staking out the, all the entrances of the courthouse to see who's coming and going. Yeah, I've had some uh, lawyers who are affiliated with these cases joke to me that they have come up with disguises so that uh, <laughs> reporters don't recognize them when they're walking into the courthouse ahead of their clients. That is, that's, that's incredible. Jackie Alamany, congressional investigations reporter for The Washington Post, as always, thank you for coming to First Look. Have a good weekend. You too. Thanks for having me. And we're going to keep the conversation going with the Opinions Roundtable in just a moment. Let's go to the opinion side of the Washington Post, where we will find Washington Post Deputy Opinion Editor David Vondrelli and Washington Post Associate Editor Eugene, Eugene Robinson. Both are Washington Post columnists. Gene, David, welcome back to First Look. Good to be Good here. here, Jonathan. Okay, so I just spent you know, the first... 12 minutes of the program talking about <laughs> Donald Trump and everything that was happening earlier this week. But I want to start this conversation by talking about what on earth happened yesterday in Tennessee. I would love for you to each of you to give me your reactions on what what went down in Tennessee, where three Democratic lawmakers were um, set for expulsion by the Republican supermajority in the state House of Representatives. Uh, 
two two black young black men, one uh, white woman. The two black men were expelled. The white woman was spared from expulsion by one vote. David, I'll start with you with your reactions. Oh, I was hoping you were going to start with Gene, uh, Jonathan. Um, <laughs> my reaction is complicated. Uh, hmm? The first is that it's a terrible day that two elected lawmakers would be uh, expelled from a state house uh, based on their political activity. Um, it's outrageous. The fact that they are two young black lawmakers is even worse. Uh, it's a terrible look for Tennessee, terrible look for obviously the Republican Party there. At another level, um, I'm heartsick about the entire process. This started with a uh, school shooting um, in Nashville, three children and three staff members killed. Um, here we are a couple of weeks later, and we've had a protest with bullhorns on the floor of the state legislature, and we've had this uh, debacle coming out of it. And I ask, what's been accomplished for child safety in the state of Tennessee? Zero. A lot of people on TV, a lot of discussion about it, and nothing done for the kids of Tennessee or the United States of America. That and that is a, a a great point, bringing it back to like how this all got started. Gene, your reactions to what's happening in Tennessee? Well, my reaction to what happened yesterday is pretty simple. I mean, it, 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 the Texas, the Tennessee state legislature, or the House, essentially said, um, "Y'all, y'all three have been acting up." Um, and you two young black fellas, y'all get out of here. Um, but the nice white lady can stay. That's what that's what happened yeah, yesterday. Which is let's keep um, it real, Gene. Uh, uh, that's that's what happened. Um, uh, and you know, David is right in that uh, this started with a school shooting. Um, uh, three nine-year-olds, three adults gunned down in a school in Nashville, and, uh, and and where are we? This is what uh, what we are doing. But I would take it a step further, um, because the expulsion of these two members of the Tennessee House, um, I, I think, has, has galvanized so much attention, uh, and I predict so much sort of political activity, political money, political, you know, it it is it has made this shooting and Tennessee and Tennessee's gun laws a focal point uh, in, a, in a way that it wasn't before. And so I'm looking ahead, not months, but years, because I think it will it will take some time before there are, there's enough change in the Tennessee state government to actually do anything about uh, gun violence, but I wouldn't be surprised if we look back at this week and saw the beginning of of something really major. You know, I'm just w wondering one more question on this, and so we could uh, move on to what happened at the beginning of this week. The multiracial, multi generational nature of the protests that erupted as a result of the school of the shooting in in Nashville. 
And to me, as tragic as all of this is from the shooting to the expulsions, the demonstrations, I'm finding some hope in them because to me, it seems to be a continuation of a very, the things that are happening in the country, they're seeping down. And it seems to me that the American people are rising up in their own jurisdictions to push back against some of the the extreme things that they're seeing happening in their own backyards. Am I reading too much into what's going on in Tennessee? Um, I don't think you, um, go ahead, Gene. No, um, well, I'll just say very quickly, um, add what happened in Tennessee to what happened in Wisconsin earlier in the week where, um, uh, you know, abortion rights was uh, a, a huge issue, and once again, um, uh, Wade uh, went in favor of of reproductive rights uh, and and against um, Republican attempts to, um, to to essentially take them all away. So, um, uh, yes, some I think something's happening uh, at the grassroots level yeah. uh, in states around around the country I, I that's what I think and I'm and I'm not <laughs> that optimistic about our politics but I, I but I, I'm starting to think something's going on mm-hmm. David uh, absolutely something's going on um, the only thing I'd say is that there's grassroots uh, activity and and uh, action and emotion and organizing going on on the right as well, and right. uh, this is the this is the trade-off uh, in a vibrant democracy, and I believe we still have a very vibrant democracy in the United States. Not everyone agrees with me on that, but we're seeing um, instead of top-down politics, in which uh, elected party leaders in Washington or in the state capitals decide what's going to happen. The agenda is being set from the bottom up, and that looks diff- very different um, yeah. <laughs> when uh, politics is being done from the ground up. Um, okay, let's let's talk about Trump because um, now that we have some distance from from the circus, a consequential circus, mm-hmm. but a circus all the same. Uh, how are you thinking about the unprecedented criminal indictment of a former president, Donald Trump, Gene? Well, look, as you and Jackie Alamany pointed out, there this is one of multiple investigations that could potentially lead to multiple indictments. And my view was that somebody had to go first, and so uh, so it was. Uh, it turned out to be Alvin Bragg. Um, uh, I think he makes a compelling case that Donald Trump broke the law, whether it was thirty-four misdemeanors or thirty-four felonies. Um, he's yet to prove, but he's got time and some ammunition to prove that, and 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 he's gonna he's gonna try. And in the meantime, before we get to the next step of this case, we're likely to see um, uh, well, we certainly will see some other uh, court action in which Donald Trump is a defendant, because later this month, uh, a court in a federal court in New York is set to begin hearing a federal civil lawsuit against uh, Trump filed by E. Jean Carroll, uh, a writer who claims that Donald Trump raped her in a in a in Bergdorf Goodman, the department store and a dressing room uh, back in the mid 90s. And, and this is um, uh, in a, a tort 
um, for which he she can sue him for for damages, and that's what she is doing. And that's that trial is supposed to begin on April 25th. So once again, you will have at least Donald Trump's attorneys and perhaps Donald Trump himself at a defense table um, uh, in a court proceeding. So we should get used to seeing this. Yeah, I, I can't believe I forgot about the E. Jean Carroll case where he has to testify. But, um, mm. but David, the, the Republican Party, like Richard Nixon's Republican Party was the law and order party. Ronald Reagan's Republican Party was the Morning in America Party. And now the Republican Party is in thrall to a man who said this week that um, federal police forces should be defunded, basically because, you know, uh, of, you know, his, his arrest on Tuesday. Uh, is this right. really where the Republican Party is? In 2009, uh, George W. Bush left the White House. The economy was uh, in a shambles. There'd been a the worst economic collapse since the Depression, and we were bogged down in a war of choice that he had started. On foreign policy and on domestic policy, the party was a shambles. And what rose out of that uh, wreckage is Donald Trump. And so it's not the Morning America Party. It's not the Law and Order Party. It's the Donald Trump Party. And until somebody comes up with a compelling agenda that more Republicans like than the Trump show, it's going to stay uh, as it is. And uh, to me, that's a tragedy because I believe uh, America does best with two well-functioning parties, mm -hmm. but we don't have two right now. Uh, we don't really have one, I would argue, <laughs> because if we had a well-functioning Democratic Party, uh, Alvin Bragg's weak case would not have been the first to go uh, in a, such a uh, politically charged environment. Um, uh, but it is what it is. So we kind of have the the crazy party and the foolish party right now. Ooh, Gene. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, I, I mean, I, I think you know, if if you phrased it as saying you have one non-functional party and one partly functional party, okay, I can, I can, I can certainly accept yeah. that. Um, I, I, I do think. Um, that the that hyperventilation about Bragg going first is just I think it's just wrong and I think it's going to seem uh, irrelevant uh, in in the due course of time um, uh, and as I said somebody had to go first and he believed he was ready um, and you know the, the the whole taboo the line we have crossed by filing criminal charges against a former president. Um, it, it, yes, there was a time when that was unthinkable. Um, but it, there was a time when it was unthinkable that someone like Donald Trump would be elected president. And from everything we knew about Donald Trump, everything we knew about his history, the way he did business, the way he did, you know, who he was, um, why did we not think this was, you know, that he would be the one um, that would cause us to break that t taboo? Weren't we always oh, destined to Oh, we did. Here? We did, Gene. <laughs> we always knew. 
I just want to point out that one um, one legal scholar, um, uh, Ellie Mistal, uh, on MSNBC last weekend during all the special coverage, made an interesting point about why D.A. Bragg went first. It has to do with statute of limitations and that he was about to bump up against some. And so that's why he went first. Yeah. But, you know, we've got less than 10 minutes left and a lot to talk about. I'm going to talk. Let's turn our attention real quickly to former Vice President Mike Pence, who announced this week that he's not going to, you know, he's going to go through and he's going to testify before Jack Smith's grand jury, uh, special counsel Jack Smith's grand jury investigation into the January 6th insurrection. David, talk about the significance of that. Well, it's uh, legally important because he has uh, very significant testimony to give about uh, what he uh, experienced inside the Capitol and his exchanges with the president and the people around the president. Uh, so on, in that sense, it's very significant. From a political standpoint, I think what it tells us is that uh, Vice President Pence doesn't see uh, an upside for him uh, in his uh, not very promising presidential campaign of his own uh, for uh, defying uh, the grand jury for making himself into a martyr. And so he's decided to uh, bite the bullet, move on, and see if time and opportunity uh, presents him with uh, uh, some some more promising uh, ammunition for his campaign down the road. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's talk about the what I call the earthquake in the Midwest that happened uh, Tuesday night while we were all focused on Lower Manhattan voters in Wisconsin and Chicago uh, made their voices heard. Uh, David, I'll start with you with Wisconsin, um, where for the first time in 15 years, there is a liberal majority on the Wisconsin Supreme Court. Um, Am I wrong in thinking that that is a political earthquake? Super important. Uh, Wisconsin was critical to uh, Donald Trump's uh, election in 2016, critical also to President Biden in 2020. This has been, and still is, one of the real swing states in the United States now. Uh, And you look at, uh, say, former Speaker of the House Paul Ryan, who spent a career moving the state to the right, and uh, now seeing all that undone, and importantly, over the abortion issue. Uh, The Republican Party has been claiming to want to hold this uh, issue close for 50 years. Now they finally have their hands on it, and uh, it's sticky indeed. And Gene, in the, Chicago... Uh, oh, go, go ahead, David. No, I was Real just going to say, Chicago's a different thing, uh, because that's an intramural battle. Uh, that's Democrats on Democrats, and the progressives did win that one, but uh, I don't see that it has any implications for Republicans who don't basically exist in Chicago anymore. Mm -hmm. But it does, Gene, have, but the Chicago race does have implications for Democrats because crime was a huge issue in Chicago. It is the reason why the Mm -hmm. incumbent mayor, Lori Lightfoot, 
It's the first Chicago sitting Chicago mayor to lose in the primary in in decades. I'm just wondering, you know, what signal does Brandon Johnson's uh, election in Chicago send to Democrats nationwide? Um, you know, Jonathan, I'm I'm going to basically agree with David that it doesn't send much of a message nationwide. And the reason is that in Chicago, um, there, there are a lot of issues that intersect, including race. Um, and uh, uh, and so, you know, what played? I mean, there's a lot of concern among African-Americans in Chicago about crime. There are a lot of African-Americans who, who might um, prefer, um, you, know, you know, who might question Brandon Johnson's uh, approach to policing, um, but uh, but who might have voted for him um, because they uh, had more questions about um, uh, Paul Vallis. And so, exactly so, and, and, uh, and, and whether he was you know, how how much of a Democrat was he? Right, uh, And right. so it, 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 it's, a, it's a, compl- Chicago's a complicated place, big, big city politics right. in a place like Chicago. And, and I'm Very glad hard you to mentioned- draw a right. message, yeah. And I'm glad you mentioned Paul Vallis's name because the the antipathy towards him among some Democrats was very high. One thing we didn't get a chance to talk about and we can't talk about it because we're already overtime. Unemployment, <laughs> the jobs numbers, 236,000 jobs created in March. Unemployment ticked down 3.5%. In short, the economy is still humming along. David Von Trela, Eugene Robinson, thank you both for coming to First Look. We are out of time. Thanks, Jonathan. Have a good weekend. Thanks for listening. To always stay up to date with First Look, subscribe to Washington Post Live's First Look on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen.